Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt like you've tried everything to heal from the pain of sexual abuse? and yet nothing seems to really be helping. Well, one of the reasons why most people struggle to break free from the pain of past child abuse is because the techniques out there are positioned as a one-size-fits-all answer. What I want you to know is that there are actually three distinct phases on the path to recovery. And I'd love to share with you about these phases, what issues you must resolve to move to the next phase, and what kinds of support you'll need in order to move forward as quickly and completely as possible. The road to recovery is much easier when you know what stage you're in and what to do next. So don't hesitate. Go to www.rachelgrantcoaching.com checklist and get your nine-page guide today. Now, on to our show. Welcome to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant, and for those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007, and I'm the author of Beyond Surviving, The Final Stage of Recovery from Sexual Abuse. I work with survivors who are sick and tired of feeling broken and unfixable, and I help them break free of the pain and finally feel normal. 
You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at rachelgrantcoaching.com. So, folks, I'm so excited to have here with me my guest today, Marilee McLean, who is going to be sharing with us about her journey navigating the court system and is also going to talk with us about the sad fact that, of course, thousands of good, loving moms are losing their children to abusers because of the way our court systems are structured right now. So I want to tell you a little bit more about her before we, we dive into our conversation. So this is a powerhouse woman. She is an advocate, a protective parent, a domestic violence expert, a professional speaker, and also the author of Prosecuted But Not Silenced, Courtroom Reform for Sexually Abused Children. Marilee has written several articles for the ABA Child Law Journal, Women's E-News, and other publications on the problems of family courts not protecting abused children. Marilee is with Women's Media Center, She Source Expert, the National Partnership to End Interpersonal Violence. She's also with APB American Program Bureau, Inc., and Rain Speaker Bureau. So <laughs> she is tied in so to so many wonderful organizations and resources and communities and really bringing her message um, very broadly into all of these different spaces. She presents at conferences, law schools, and is a spokesperson for protective mothers. Her passion for advocacy developed through living a mother's worst nightmare, and we're going to hear more about that, and you can certainly hear, you know, know more of her story and read her story in her book. Really, she was launched into fighting this system that is set up with everything she had, and as a result of that, gained insight that this is really not her nightmare alone, that there are so many other mothers going through this same thing. She organized a national rally of mothers at the Colorado State Capitol and has been involved in legislative work that spans over two decades. She testified before Congress to promote judicial accountability to better protect sexually abused children's rights in our courts. Marilee's story has been covered by many media outlets and internationally on CNN. So Marilee, it is with deep and wonderful pleasure that I that I have you here with us today. Thank you so much for taking some time to be here. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you, Rachel, and all the work that you do. So I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. So I want to start off. Uh, I when when I met you and found out about what you were up to and that you know you had published this book, I immediately downloaded it, got it on on my Kindle, and um set to reading about it reading and the very first night that I started your book I often start read right before bed so I started reading around nine o'clock and then the next thing I know I looked over at the clock and it was three AM <laughs> and I was like whoa <laughs> like, because <laughs> it was just one page after another of oh my gosh no what that can't, huh? And like waiting for like a moment of relief and a moment of, okay, okay, things are going to be okay now. And just going on that journey through the the pain and and this. And, and you start off, I want to read something from your book that um, just to kind of set the stage for our conversation today and for our listeners. Um, some that right in early on in the book that you said. 
I'm telling you our story because I want to change a judicial a judicial system that is detrimental to sexually abused children. I write this book with the best interest of the child in mind and to acknowledge the pain that is inflicted upon families by our inept and biased judicial system, a system designed to fail the child and protect the abuser. There is an unequivocal need for courtroom reform and more adequate training for judges, lawyers, therapists, social workers, and court-appointed evaluators. So this was really impactful for me to just read from the very beginning because it it wasn't something that I had really had my eye very closely on, um, myself not having gone through any of this in my own journey and uh, not with many of my clients to date um, as well. And so the first kind of thing that comes to mind is, you know, years later now, um, you're still involved in helping to educate and change what's happening in our courts and to children. So I, I'd love to know more about, you know, what spurs you on and and also anything that you've noticed that is the same or anything that you've noticed has shifted um, since you published your book. Well, I'd like to say that it's all shifted and it's changed and it's moved in the right direction, but I can't say so. Um, I got involved, obviously, like you said, many years ago, believing that the system would change and that we could um, enlighten what was happening because there's so many of these cases, and there literally are thousands of these cases. I get calls from women from every state every day of my life um, with almost identical cases to what I went through and what these other mothers are going through just trying to protect their children. And these are good, loving women and mothers that are not a drug addict or an alcoholic or you know anything wrong with them other than mother love, just trying to do the right thing and protect their child. So, and it's not just here in the U.S., it is international as well. I'd say more so here in the U.S., but it is international as well. So I've spent um, many years, two decades in this, over two decades. And why I do now is because of um, not necessarily my daughter and I now. My goal is, it is, it came from that obviously, but it's to make a difference, to wake up society to what's going on, just like even you, Rachel, that are in the middle of all this and have lived this, to not really know how much this is going on. And our media is not picking it up. It's like they may have picked it up with my case, the CNN International News, but these other cases are not getting picked up. It's just like not happening. And we need to get it out to the public and make this a huge media. It's a health it's really a health issue. It's a national health crisis because we're not looking at this issue. And I know you understand that part of it. And I'm just, maybe the um, listeners don't, and we'll, we'll get to that later, I'm sure. It's a great point. And it is, a, you know, a, <laughs> I can only imagine the endurance that it's taken you to, to stay in this fight um, when you see maybe little shifts here or there, but the the need um, so far outweighs um, the resources and the awareness. I absolutely agree with what you said that, you know, our, our media and our government and our systems are just not really taking this as seriously as it really needs to be because 
given the epidemic that child abuse is and the long-term effects that it has, it is a social, yes. you know, it's a social issue. It's not an individual person's issue. It affects our communities. It affects our population as a whole. It affects health and um, income and finances and, you know, crime. I mean, there's just the, the trickle-down effects are so very broad. Um, so I'm thankful that we have people um, like yourself who are staying in it and then continuing to to push for reform and um, and bring about more and more legislation that protects both children and the parent who is trying to to protect them. Yeah, and uh, Rachel, I think too. I, I just thought of something as you were saying that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'd have to say it was probably over 20 years ago. Uh, it was 1994 to be exact. It was the year the VAWA Act was passed, and I had a rally at the Capitol, and this attorney. Um, who was very big in these cases and understood this and was a domestic violence survivor herself, got on the Capitol steps. And I'll never forget the words she said. And this is what is so shocking to me. She said, it took them 20 years to listen to domestic violence. And we do not have another 20 years for them to listen to this issue. Yeah. She said, this is like the Civil yeah. Rights Act of the 60s. This is the movement of the 90s. And then she said, at first, we were just going to take a list of mothers at her center that she had in New Jersey for domestic violence, because most of these cases are domestic violence cases that move into the abuse of the children. She said, but today, we're taking a different list. And that list is going to be a list of judges. And the first judge on that list is going to be Judge Michael Beta, who has sentenced Marilee McLean's child to a lifetime of abuse. Mm-hmm. And her fist goes in the air. And this is for you, Amy. And you know, that was the start of all this. I, 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 wow. I was gasping when we had the, um, at the Civic Center here in Colorado, the rally for Women's March. And I really felt the Women's March has all kinds of issues, not just on Trump. But, I mean, it was all women's issues. And I looked over at the Capitol steps and was reminiscing that day at the Capitol and thinking, mm-hmm. where have we come? And all this, where have we really come? Because society really needs to take a look at this. This is, could be your niece. It can be your aunt. It could be yeah. your sister, your mother, your daughter. I don't care who, but it's, it is it is going to affect you. And just like when they don't want to look at survivors, all those, and, and, and how many survivors we have, this is another part of it that they don't want to look at, but it is affecting all of us. That's like what you said, the drug yeah. addiction, the alcoholism, the, the PTSD, the heart disease, cancer. It all affects all of us. So if our society can't take a look at what's happening and then our courts aren't doing the right thing by these children and their and their moms that are trying to protect them, you know, where are we in society when we can't look at this issue? Yeah, I, I hear you. Why do you think that, uh, that this topic still remains um, in the shadows in some ways? Why mainstream media isn't doing more to pick up and, and bring about awareness? Uh, why legislation still is so archaic in so many ways and not up to date and not up to speed with, you know, really where we're at? Do you have any thoughts as to why that is? Well, you know, I mean, I've studied this for a long time and everybody has their own opinions on it. And I'm just going to give you kind of what gets out there is, it's a gender bias issue, which I do believe it is. Um, and then it's then some women will think, well, it's paternal paternal control. You know, the the mm-hmm. fact that men had the control of their women and their babies, you know, forever. And then it's kind of the pendulum swings back the other way, and women start getting their kids when they were stay at home moms. Mm-hmm. But that's not happening today. And then other women will say, other mothers that are finding this is the father's right 
you know, funding, which is, we're talking millions, millions and millions, even more than that, that is going into funding fathers' rights, federal government funding. Well, you don't see these mothers getting any federal funding. And um, there's there's all issues to this. But to me, I I look back and I think, oh, when I was going through it, I felt like it was like the Salem witch hunt because mm-hmm. you are so attacked by the system, not just... It's not just men attacking you because a lot of these women judges are doing this. So, right. so we've got a bigger picture here to really look at. And why do we want to keep this under wraps? A lot of it's education. It is. I mean, these judges, I, I just went to um, Colorado, talked to the head of the family court system, the management of it for the training. So it's all Colorado where they do training for judges. And I wanted to get in to be able to do some of this training. Now, I'm somebody on the outside. I'm not a judge. and I'm not an attorney. But I have a lot of education on this area, and I wanted to help train them on, you know, the adverse childhood reaction. There's evidence, you know, all that ACE study, um, not just the ACE study, but on what's happening in the courts and show them these cases that are coming through the court system where these are good, loving mothers that have evidence their child's being sexually abused and what are what our courts are doing. So an education process in that area. And they said to me that judges only have to do five hours of training a year and they can pick where those hours are. Well, if you're a judge in a domestic violence um, district, I mean, that's all the cases that you get are a lot of domestic violence cases, family law cases, then you should be mandatory having to take mm-hmm. training. And not just yeah. from another judge who doesn't really understand this issue. And I'm not saying... All judges don't understand this issue, and I'm not putting anything into an all or not category, but what I'm saying is they don't understand the fact of domestic violence in these cases and how these women come in, you know, they've pretty much lost everything, and they're trying to fight for their child, and they're up against possibly a psychopath, sociopath, narcissist. I mean, you these these men that commit this kind of a crime aren't just your everyday guy next door. These guys are very manipulative and so that woman may not come across as well as that psychopath or sociopath or narcissist may but judges don't even understand the dynamics that are going on in that courtroom secondly it's a myth to believe that women make up false allegations because the stats will show and prove which was done by the judicial commission that it is 1.3% of women would make a false allegation. 1.3, that's next to nine. No woman that loves her children is going to put herself through this. This is a nightmare. And, and, or their child through that, you know. So most of these cases are contested custody cases um, where they're, um, you know, usually when a parent and a couple get divorced or whatever, they really want to do what's right by that child. So they want the child maybe 50-50 or they want to make sure it goes in a, a good way for the child. But when it's a contested custody case, those cases are usually abuse cases. This is about control. Mm-hmm. This is about manipulation and to control that woman and control that child. It's all about control and power. Yeah. And when our system doesn't understand that and aren't trained in that, they don't get it. And it totally goes over their head. Plus, most of our courts, our family courts, are not evidentiary hearings. They don't they don't bring out the evidence like a criminal court would. So if you were raped, which I know, um, or I or whatever's out there in the public, I'm not going into uh, you know, family abuse or anything like that. Just say we were raped or and a child is raped, but it's the father, it goes into family court. Mm-hmm. Most abuse is happening within the families, as we well know. 
It's not the boogeyman behind the bush, hiding behind the bush. It is within your family. And if family courts aren't willing to take in the evidence and it doesn't go to criminal court, they're not prosecuting. They don't even look at the evidence. Most of these women, you know, do not have their uh, First Amendment rights. You know, you have, you, you have really no civil rights in there or your human, human rights are denied for, for both the child and the mother. No due process is happening. When they're throwing out police reports and doctor's reports and not yeah. looking at the evidence, what do you call that? That was in criminal court. They'd have to look at that stuff. The problem with criminal court is it has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And a lot of these cases won't have physical evidence. And even when they, you know, so it's, it's difficult. But my gosh, that's better than going into family court and prosecuting the mother and giving the child to the abuser. And that's what's happening. Right. My goodness. Thank you so much. There's so many pieces of what you just shared there that are aha moments for me and like, oh my gosh, moments. And, um, you know, first of all, just to reiterate what you said about the training, the real lack of training that people who are in charge of making these decisions, you know, uh, don't have. Uh, it's in some ways, I, I, it's totally scary. It's totally scary. And, you know, I, 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 uh, that parallels a little bit even the training that a lot of counselors and therapists receive. Um, oh, absolutely. This similar thing where it's like a weekend, you know, training or it's a one class to cover all types of abuse. Like, how are people really going to be fully equipped, you know, to, to address this particular trauma? And so the fact that there's that lack of education and lack of resourcing, the other thing I really liked about what you said there was that they also are not reaching outside of their inner circles to get this training or to get this understanding. And so there's mm-hmm. a high likelihood that they're getting bad information or not, you know, a full, you know, kind of rounded education about about all of this. I think well, and, and one more thing I want to interject there is yeah. there's a report that was done by um, Dr. Dan Sanders, and it was with the justice author, and it is on this very fact. It's research. It's not just a report. It's huge research on judges, therapists, um, evaluators, uh, all whether they're trained in this area. And he found them not to be trained in this area. He found that the best people to do the training for this would be an advocate that has been through domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Who better to train them than somebody that's been through it to give yeah. them the real insights to what goes on. So I, I think that is a great study that should be out there everywhere. So Can you name the study again? The author? Yeah, it's um Doctor it's Doctor Dan Sanders and it was done by the Justice Office. He was he was asked to do it, so it was a grant that they gave him to do it or whatever. And it's a research study on the training of judges and evaluators, like custody evaluators, on domestic violence and the mm-hmm. lack of training that they really have. And that yeah. the, it, it, it pretty much points out what's going on, whether it's sexual okay. abuse or whatever. They're, they really do not have the correct training for this. And I can go more into that, but it's just a long process. <laughs> so, but, it, but it, is a good, okay. it is a good one. Yeah, thank you for that, Marilee. You know, the other thing that you talked about there in that in that piece and as as far as beginning to try to wrap our heads around why things are happening the way they are in our court systems is this level of manipulation. You know, as I was reading your story and, you know, the time and time again, the people who were supposed to be advocating uh for Amy and protecting her <laughs> were duped essentially and um turned on their heads by um the father and god like that for me was one of the 
the most difficult thing to take. Things mm-hmm. exactly like hold on. You're the ones who are I supposed to be protecting. I didn't understand that either. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was more or less. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but oh, it's, it's okay. like I get I get into that part because <laughs> it still upsets yeah. me. But it, it's so shocking to me that somebody that's supposed to be trained in psychology or trained as a guardian item for the child, lawyer for the child, or a social worker that. I understand they don't understand the manipulation and the control on that, but it really, what bothered me the most was, okay, I understand that they can manipulate and they can control in that way, but how could you not look at the safety of that child first and not listen to that child? That is just the, to me, I don't care, put everything else aside. My daughter was not somebody who didn't talk. My daughter told policemen, doctors, over social and workers, over and, over again. and in detail that no child could come up with. Yeah. She had physical evidence of abuse, and we still ignore it. That, yeah. to me, will boggle my mind the rest of my life. But those so-called, I would call them so-called professionals, because that yeah, was agree. not a professional handling, handling these kind of cases. They, they totally weren't just taken in by him, but... Uh, maybe by the myth, maybe by um, not wanting to believe it, or I don't know. I, I have never been able to wrap my head around how people can ignore this when it's yeah. that evident. You know, and for me, as I was reading your story, I mean, there are so many layers that start to come in because, first of all, you're dealing with you you personally, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, if any of my assumptions or assessments are, are not on point, but, like, my sense of it was, you know, there's this first layer of, like, I have to deal with the fact that I need to leave this relationship, right? Somebody who you, you know, you were in love with and you did care about, but it reaches that point where you go, whoa, whoa, like, this is not okay. This is not working. So you're going through that grieving and that loss and trying to get your life sorted again and get started again as a single parent. And then you find out that your child is being abused. So you have all of that now to be thinking about and figuring out. And then you go to the systems that are supposed to help you navigate that (laughs) And protect your child. (laughs) And they are traumatizing both you and her. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, this is, you know, and, you know, I think that I'd love to hear just a little bit about about that layer for you. Like, the damage that you really see was caused to you and your daughter um, by the court system, let alone the abuse and all of that. But, you know, we'll talk about that in a moment, perhaps. But just from that experience, what do you notice for some of the the, the impact of that on you and, and Amy? Well, I have to say, I mean, I think that um, I can't speak for her, but, but I do. She has um, told me how much the trauma of all that was. But they kind of let, I, it would be hard for me to explain that on, on this, but sure. how the layers of all that of being kept from her mother and silenced and, and how that's affected her life, I can't even tell you how much. But as far as um, going through that divorce, I mean, I made up my mind to leave him while I was pregnant with her. He was horrific to me during my pregnancy. And um, I had to get out carefully. Now, this is before you ever really read about domestic violence or you you had the warning signs that we have out there today. I mean, I didn't have blackened eyes. I was being, I was physically abused and, and emotionally abused. But I say the emotional abuse was worse than the physical abuse. Now, I mean, it, it was horrific. And so 
I think that getting out of that marriage, I had to get out real carefully. And somehow, instinctively, I knew that. So I did it very carefully. And honestly, I think I did it right because I wouldn't be here today. So I handled it very well. But I was going through a horrific divorce and, and a lot of manipulation going on behind the scenes. And then from there, things calming down because that's what these guys do. They're... Um, they're high and lows, and you never know when they're going to go. And so um, at this point, things had started to mellow out, and I thought, you know, I I married this man because I thought he'd be a great father, and he loved kids, and I just thought he'll be the best dad, you know. But I never dreamed anything like this. And once again, this was far removed from my life, and I grew up with a great, happy home life and wonderful family and wonderful parents. So I just, it just never crossed my path. Mm-hmm. But when it did... It was like the ultimate of abuse because I had just barely gotten out of light out of my own relationship with him and the sick stuff he was doing to the fact now thinking things were going to be normal and he was mellowed out. I thought it was a divorce and he mellowed out, finding out that he's uh, raping my daughter, you know, so mm-hmm. that was like the ultimate. And then to go into the court system, believing in the court system, I grew up very naively believing in the system and believing that the truth would prevail and door after door slammed in my face and treated with disdain, I'd have to say. And yeah, it took its toll on me. I, I only reason I survived was I was never not going to get my daughter, get her home mm-hmm. and get her safe. I was never, ever going to give up and I didn't. And I believed that all mothers have to do that. I mean, I don't know that they can do, a lot of them don't make it. I have women that have gone to bed where they just go to bed and never get out of bed again because they're so depressed or they've committed suicide and uh, they've ran in the underground or ran out of the country and they don't make it. The FBI brings them back. And I believe in staying in the system, even though it's horrific. But um, that's what I tell the moms that are going through this is, you got to stay in those supervised visits, which I ended up in supervised visits, which I'm sure we'll get to. But, but I, but I stayed in those visits for eight years, like a hardened criminal. Most women can't do that because it is the most excruciating. And I have to say, probably why I survived was because I had such a great upbringing and a lot of self-esteem and a good family behind me. And some of these women don't have that, so mm-hmm. that's they don't make it, and they can't do it financially either. They're broken exactly. financially. There's all these other factors that now come into play in order to make it possible for you to stay engaged. I mean, we're talking lawyers' bills, we're talking, you know, advocate bills, it, all these different un- things. That. It's un- yeah. unbelievable what you'll go through, yeah. and it's hard for these women to maintain a job because, right. you know, it, you're you're constantly going to court. Number one, and if you're not going to court, you're taking your job, child to a therapist, or you're. It's just constant, and so mm-hmm. a lot of these women can't maintain a job because they, you know, they just end up getting fired. Right. And if they don't get fired, they've gone through all their money anyway. Yeah. No, in the book uh, you described, there was a moment where you talked about what it was like to be a mom watching her child in pain due to abuse. So I want to read that excerpt, um, if it's okay. (laughs) So I felt that there was a hole in my stomach and it was getting larger so large that it threatened to eat me up inside. When Amy went back to sleep after her nightmares about her dad, I lay awake with my insides aching, and the hole grew larger and then swirled so fast 
that I couldn't breathe. My heart pounded and I experienced severe chest pains as if I were having a heart attack. I told myself not to breathe or move because if I did, I would probably die. You know, Marilee, I really appreciated that. And it hit me, it's hitting me hard even right now. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this perspective that I think it's really hard to truly understand, you know, what it is like to be a parent who wants to protect their child and everyone is standing in the way that you have to send this little person every day off, you know, to be with someone who is raping them, harming them. And I can only imagine for any mom out there who's listening, you know, what it's like for them. And I'd, I'd love for you just to maybe share, you know, like what you, what you would want to say to other moms out there who are going through this right now who might resonate very much with, with that description of the pain. Well, that actually, you know, I haven't, I, I don't, I mean, that was written so long ago, and I honestly, that really hit me too. Um, that is the exact feeling that I had, and and I'm sure that these other mothers have. Um, I used to say, been better off killing us than going through what we went through through the court system, and then to continue to have to hand, hand over your child to an abuser. There's really nothing worse. I, I think that a mom's first instinct, I always say this, this is something I say in a speech, a mother's first instinct is to protect her child, and when the means and power to do this are stripped unjustly from a mother, there are no words to describe the constant heartache that is felt as each day passes by, and that's the same. You, you can't even imagine, I, another mom wrote a poem uh, to to lose a child through life, not through death, but through life, and it's a beautiful poem, and what it shows is that it's like a death, Mm -hmm. And I've had women say to me when I speak at the Battered Mothers Conference, and they'll come in from all across the country, and they'll say, I tell them, I said, look at the mother sitting next to you, and look at her eyes. No, you take a really good look at her eyes, because there's no one that will ever understand this kind of pain but another mother going through it. And you've got to stick together, because all you have is each other, and you are your child's own best advocate. You're the only real advocate that child's going to have is going to be that mother. And so I believe these mothers, I, I when I get calls, sometimes, you know, it's so hard for me to take still because obviously it takes me into my past somewhat and I'm trying to get through it and listen to it. And a lot of them are the exact same story. Mm-hmm. But I tell them, at no cost do you give up. If you end up no supervised visits, you stay in them as, as, as whatever it takes it's hell and and you can't give up fighting and even if you have to go pro se where they have to represent themselves I found not all moms can do this either I'm not saying every mother out there needs to do this because they can't but the ones that are strong enough to when they go in to represent themselves they know their case better than anybody and you may not know the law and you get crucified on that area but at least you have a voice and that's one thing having that voice is huge and that makes a difference. And I believe I moved my case forward by me representing myself at the end when I had no more money and I was completely bankrupted because I had a voice. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I just, you know, I know the heart-wrenching pain is unbearable and I know they cry themselves to sleep at night. And I had a mom call me recently, had a four-and-a-half-year-old girl, and that's the same time I lost my little girl. And 
he was saying, I can't, I can't give her back to him. I, I can't do it. Can you take her? Will you take her? Well, I can't take her. I mean, the FBI would be on me in two seconds. What good would that do, you know? Right. But it's like that's the pain they're going through. They would have yeah. anybody take their child rather than have to hand them over to that abuser again. Yeah, yeah. Man, thank you for those those words and for that guidance and for that, that hope. And, you know, that... That was something that also really stood out to me as I was reading your story that every so often in in <laughs> in the midst of these chapters where you were describing such difficult times there would be these little sentences or these little phrases every once in a while and yet I I continued on or I kept hoping that it was all going to be okay there was like this this in, internal optimism that you drew on was was kind of my feeling about it, and uh, I guess I'm curious about how that optimism is is today. <laughs> how are you doing in the hopefulness? You know, I, I this is something that I I think it's kind of funny that you brought that up. Um, I grew up an optimist. I mean, honestly, I had those rose colored glasses on. I believed everything was hunky dory, but. But um, it's funny, my daughter is that same kind of optimist, and I find that really strange after what she's been through, but she always looks at the good out there, which shocks me. So I think uh, that optimism just came from who I was. Today, um, I still am optimistic. I just know, like what I told you, it took them 20 years to listen to domestic violence, and we don't have another 20 years for them to listen to this issue. We are in it. And for social change to happen, it takes a long, long time. I've accepted that. I don't accept the fact that it's continuing on. And whatever little difference I can make, whether it's talking to the head of family courts here in Colorado, whether it's testifying before Congress, whether it's going to the media, whether it's working for Moms Fight Back, which is an organization here in Colorado that we're going to do legislative work and we're setting up a court watch team, anything I do, everything I do every day, Every day that I do is to make a difference in this issue. So that is my optimism. Not that I'm going to be able to change it because it's going to take a lot. It's going to take, I, I accept the fact that this is going, I didn't think it was going to take this long for mm-hmm. people to pick up on it and grab it. And I really am really upset with the media because I think the only way to get this out, really get it out, the only time you see change in the world is when the media grasps it. And we really need the media to grasp this to save these children. And I, I get upset, like, when you read, um, what was the guy, uh, Saund- Doc, uh, the Saunders guy that um, raped the boys, the coach, no, and then the Catholic priest, how we all got upset about the Catholic priest. But the biggest criminal of all of those, way more than those two and how upset all the public got over those two issues, is our family court system. Yeah. Way more abuse going on, and yet nobody's looking at it. Yeah. It's an important thing that you're bringing to the table here is this structure of there being this separation, right, between the court system and the criminal justice system, and that in Mm -hmm. the court system so many things um, get a pass or um, are not brought forward in the same way they would be if we were in in the criminal um, justice system. I I really appreciate the... um, just the passion that you have and and the perspective that you know we have to do what we can each day and move yeah. it, move that move, notch it forward as best we can you know and mm-hmm. and continue uh collaborating you know one of the other things that I heard you say earlier that I love to reiterate is just the support like you know we have to have support systems in place 
And if you're definitely if you're in the midst of going through this yourself and trying to protect your child, you know, reach out to support. I'd love you to say a little bit more about MomsFightBack.org, um, as well as your website, uh, MarilyMcLean.com, and and what people can expect to find at each of those um, uh, websites. Well, Moms Fight Back is really um, an organization that was brought in to account for the fact that not just dealing with this issue, this is where I work and I'm the, the director of outreach for it. So I work on a court watch team and courtroom reform and setting up that kind of thing. But it, it deals with a lot of issues. It deals with bullying. It deals with, um, you know, marijuana issues, things that mothers care about. So it's really handling a lot of uh, different approaches. But we will be doing legislative work next year, and, and that's where I'm going to really take hold for as far as um, the courtroom reform goes and the Safe Child Act, the Safety of the Child First, and, and other issues that we need to deal with up front. But as far as um, Mom's Fight Back, it's, it's working a lot of different issues, and, I, mm-hmm. and it, it will make a difference. But we really just got started on this possibly about two years ago, mm-hmm. so it's taking time. So everything takes a lot of time. There's lots of organizations working on this very issue, just this. And um, and I believe, and like I'll say to all of them when I ever speak, at where we have most of them together, is really we need an umbrella over all those organizations as one to do the mm-hmm. same thing because mm-hmm. everybody's going here, here, and yeah, here, and it's not, mm-hmm. it's, that, that is, that is not going to work really need to come together as one. So that's my opinion. Did mm-hmm. I answer your question? You did. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so folks, be sure to check out momsfightback.org. And then tell us a little bit about your website, Marilee McLean. That's M-A-R-A-L-E-E-M-C-L-E-A-N.com. What, can, uh, what resources, what can people expect to find when they visit your website? Well, um, you know, it has a lot of my speaking engagements on there, and it has the news releases on PAS, Parental Alienation Syndrome with Richard Gardner, which I did, CNN International News Story. It's about an hour-long program on parental alienation syndrome, and actually Richard Gardner was in this piece. And for those of you that don't know who Richard Gardner was, he um, started this theory back in the early 80s. That's why all these women started losing custody and he would self-publish his book and he sent it to every court in the nation. And so all these courts start taking on his theory. Well, his theory, I mean, he even states in his own books, and you can pick up his books to find out it's okay for the pedophile to come out of the closet and choose whom they want to love. It's God's will. And that we need to have more pity for the pedophile than scorn. You know, that it makes little girls and little boys better sexual partners. And... um Anyway, he ended up killing himself, I think about 10 or 11 years ago, stabbing himself in the upper part of his chest, and and he uh, committed suicide. But it's not approved by the AMA, American Medical Association, or the American Psychological Association. However, that PAS, uh, Parental Alienation Syndrome, is still being used in our courts, and women are still losing custody because of it. So I, you know, a lot of my website has the PAS in it. It has the CNN piece, um, a lot of news coverage, uh, articles that I've written, and, um, you know, my book, of course, to to be able to purchase my book or read about my book, and um, just the information of things that I'm doing out there trying mm-hmm. to make a difference. Right. Great. Thank you. 
Yeah, and I really recommend um, for anybody who's listening that is navigating the court system, navigating, you know, is on this, you know, similar journey to uh, reach out to Marilee via her website or you can reach her at L-E-I-G-H, M as in Mary, C-L, at hotmail.com. Check out the resources. Reach out to her. There's so much... um, just available out there, and I am so so glad to know about you um, as my Facebook group, Healing from Sexual Abuse, continues to grow. Of course, there are many parents uh, in that group who are also not just dealing with their own healing, but are also now parenting a child who has been abused and are navigating very similar issues. So you are such a wonderful resource, um, and I just thank you. I can't even thank you enough for um, just what you're doing in this world and the the uh, the change that you are fighting for um, to bring about. So thank you so much. It's been such an honor to have you here with us today. Well, thank you, and thank you for your work. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> Thanks, very Mary Lee. Very important. <laughs> mm. Any final thoughts um, before we wrap up today? Um, you know, not really. I feel like I hope people out there listening um, can get involved more on this issue and can, you know, write to senators or congressmen or um, look to see what's going on in domestic violence shelters or what's happening with women that are trying to protect their children, even if they aren't going to a domestic violence shelter or court watching these cases, mm-hmm. because there is no um, accountability for our family court system. There is no transparency in those courtrooms. Those judges can do whatever they want. There is no, Mm -hmm. that's that's the problem. And I really believe that's what needs to happen is accountability and transparency. And not to think that this can't happen to you and to understand the ACE study research and and what happens with adverse childhood experiences and and the ACEs and how it affects all of society and the billions of dollars it's costing society. I don't go into the money issue much because to me this is a, a huge issue, but I'm not trying to project it out to be the money side of it because it really needs to stop, not just about the money, mm-hmm. but a, the real reason this is happening. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, Marilee. So, thank you. Uh, yeah, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in and for listening today. We really appreciate you being here and, and joining us. And uh, I want to remind everybody to check out rachelgrantcoaching.com. Pop on over there and check out the additional resources that you can find there for healing from sexual abuse. And I hope you will also take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and leave a, a review um, if you're enjoying what you're learning and getting to know uh, from this podcast. And... Uh, Be well. Until next time, take good care of you, and we'll see you in next month. All right. Bye, everyone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.